in this episode, Devin Tomlinson shares his journey from being events manager at Billy the Bums in Durban to becoming global brand ambassador for Whitley Neal Gin and Dead Man's Finger Rum at Halewood Artisanal Brands in the UK. Devin shares his journey with us and gives us some insights on global drinks trends. My name is Holger Meyer and this is Drinks World. Devin Tomlinson, welcome to the show. Hi, Holger. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Yeah, and you in a cab in London and I'm in my chilled office in, in, in Kloof. Um, uh, we our paths crossed in Durban in the trade. You started um, as a bartender at Billy the Bums and now you're the global brand manager for some beautiful brands. How did that happen? Yeah, so I think um, obviously quite unique uh, story. Um, obviously, starting in, in Durban in South Africa, uh, running a lot of events, um, hospitality. You know, a lot of a lot of B two C engagement. Um, especially, you know, running my own events company and and running starting up my own gentlemen's club or spirits club, uh, which was more of a networking opportunity for for me to understand a bit more of the market. Um, I received my first uh, kind of opportunity in 2014 with, with Halewood um, through all my events and, and bartendering uh, background and Billy the Bums and doing some some pop-ups around Durban. Okay. Um, and yeah, I, I got kind of a, you know, everyone wants two years, three years of experience and, you know, in the industry before you start, but I kind of just, uh, I think, bludgeoned my way into a position saying that I'd, you know, be the best salesperson, you know, within the, it was actually Blue Star Brands, Holger, the mm, first one, I think, when we crossed brands, yeah. uh, crossed paths. Um, and, they, you know, a, a, a simple case in the story, everyone wants 10 years of experience with, you know, all the credentials. But how does someone get into the industry to start? You know, where does that where does that experience come from if you're not given a lifeline? So, um, yeah, I think it's, it was just putting my, my foot forward that I had the experience, a unique experience um, in the industry. And I wanted to project that onto some brands and grow them as, as quick as possible in a, in a very strong market, KZN. Um, so that lifeline came for uh, the Durban July in, okay. in 2015. I do remember 2014, actually. Sorry, um, and that kind of progressed me out of the bar scene. You know, the background of running, you know, doing cocktails and shows and late nights and running a nightclub as well in Stamford Hill Road, uh, Tokyo nightclub as well um, in a marketing capacity. Um, so I think I had a very unique um, adaption to different consumers. You know, main market on a Thursday, students on a Wednesday. Uh, your standard consumers on a Friday and Saturday. So I had a great introduction to how multiple consumers uh, and their needs uh, with regards to drinks, how they vary, you know, how they variate between different products, uh, how often they consumed, what their price sensitivity is. And so there's a lot of learnings that I don't realize I, I was actually getting through that whole process. Um, I was just, you know, really enjoying that whole consumer B2C led side of the industry. Um, and then through some really strong brands, Cruise Vodka, yeah. I think we, we all remember that. I know the style's done very well with the brand now, um, but it was great to be part of that, you know, growing that initially in, in South Africa. Um, the White and Mackay range, so Glen yeah. Bronach, Ben Reich, um, White and Mackay whiskey, um, and then some interesting liqueurs, the Magnums, and, and obviously the rest of the liqueur range that they had there was um, the starting blocks. Yeah. Um, you know, working in a, in a, in a part retail off-trade role, part on-trade. And that's kind of where it geared up all my, my learnings and, and network uh, with the likes of Pick and Pays and Liquor Cities and Liquor Runner, you know, um, Ultra Liquors, yeah. you know, Panji Vans and uh, Salmon Roth at uh, CNB Boffer. 
Um, I think just that that whole network of understanding how booze was, you know, kind of distributed in KZN was an eye opener for me uh, through that that retail sector. Um, and I learned very quickly there was no blueprint, uh, <laughs> there was no no kind of management, and that's I think that was the best way to learn. You know, getting thrown in the deep end to yeah. start. Um, I learned very quickly without a you know kind of a cheat sheet on what to do. Um, and from there, um, I kind of got a lifeline to Halewood just as a um, an opportunity because of of the good work I did with Blue Sky Brands over yeah, a nine month period um, and growing the brands extensively in KZN. Um, and through that, got offered a lifeline into Halewood. And we all, obviously, everyone knows, I'm, I'm sure, about the Halewood portfolio. Uh, you know, the king of RTDs and uh, South Africa, one of South Africa's biggest brands, Red Square, um, you know, Caribbean Twist, and all those kind of RTD-led uh, commercial products, but they were transitioning into artisanal spirits. Um, and that's kind of where I came into the picture. You know, coming from that background, they wanted me to, with my network, grow or develop uh, the artisanal spirits portfolio. Um, so, uh, ironically, through my hospitality and events, uh, I met with uh, my, my, fu- my future but now ex-boss. Um, and he employed me uh, with an interview on a cell phone outside Waxy O'Connor's in Westville. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is which was quite interesting. So, yeah, I mean that's kind of where the journey started. The South African piece, obviously KZN, knowing that KZN is a um, you know quite a vital cog in the wheel with regards to spirits sales and, and brand development in South Africa. And um, we put a lot of focus into the Red Square vodka to start. And mm-hmm. um, we were tasked with uh, with eating into the the Smirnoff eighteen eighteen and Russian bear market in uh, I don't know if you, you remember those days. Yeah, yeah. Um, right in the beginning, just because the RTDs were starting to kind of plateau out, yeah. the Smirnoff. I mean, sorry, the Red Square Ice and and um, our Energizer. Um, in terms of that portfolio, and we're looking for other avenues of how to grow portfolio. Um, so that's kind of where the Gentleman's Club came into uh, fruition, um, and I used that as a platform to to grow Whitley Neal and Pogues. Um, I know you remember mm. Pogues Irish Whiskey in, in West yeah. Cork in those days. Um, and our first kind of exhibition of, of launching those brands was through these premium gentlemen's evenings that I did across KZN, you know, the Oyster Box okay. uh, chairman and all these, you know, kind of, uh, I want to call them top tier on-trade venues that wouldn't have listed the brand unless we brought some value to them. Um, so we used other avenues or I tried to use another avenue to get listings. Um, and through that and my relationships with, with Blue Sky, um, we managed to do quite a, quite good work on, on the Halewood portfolio. Um, and with my eventing background, it was quite easy to execute some some very strong activational pieces, um, you know, listing agreements, um, outdoor events, you know, the likes of uh, Durban Days and, and, you know, Botanic Gardens events and, you know, mm. kind of these like really niche events that potentially normally cost quite a lot of money uh, through my relationships. And then um, I got often an opportunity, I remember quite quite vividly um, uh, my boss phoning me and saying listen Martin, the CEO is coming down to Cape Town in, in, in six weeks uh, we need to grow Whitley Neal in the home of the brand um, we need you down there uh, how do you feel going down there and I was like great I would, I would love to I was in Durban North I remember I was near um, near the lookout actually uh, in Durban North there uh, going into Porters which is one of my main accounts Yeah. and uh, Mark Porter I was sitting with Mark Porter and they phoned me and he said uh um, how about you in 48 hours? <laughs> Why not? Um, so well, you know, I kind of packed my life up in, in Durban. My family's still in, in Jan Halfmare Road in Westville. Um, and yeah, I packed the life up and went down to Cape Town, uh, bunked in with a friend in, in Batenkan Street in, in, by Parliament. And um, yeah, and then 
kicked into gear for an eight-week program to grow the brands across all the best on trade in Cape Town. Um, and we went from roughly about a handful of listings, I know throughout the town, to uh, we got to 180 listings in eight weeks um, across the, the Cape portfolio, uh, which was great. You know, I mean, obviously, mm. there was a huge effort, you know, for my CEO to see that. And, um, you know, he, uh, he subsequently took us to dinner and was quite impressed and, you know, very happy with us and, and wanted to offer us um, incentives or additional bonuses. But um, I, I thought another avenue, uh, I thought I'd be a bit, uh, a bit blunt with him. And I, I said to him, I, I wanted to have a conversation with him about progression. Um, so I thought the best place to do that is on a level playing field. And um, I took him up Table Mountain. <laughs> uh, obviously being quite fit uh, already. I mean, I, I was running and training and, and obviously keep my, keep a, a balanced lifestyle between drinking a lot and um, working in obviously uh, NPD and, and R&D as we call it. Um, I took him up Table Mountain. I remember in December at 11 a.m. on a hot summer's day. And now he's a you know, early 60s British, you know, slightly unhealthy uh, CEO. And um, I got him halfway up the mountain and he was, I, I felt like I might lose him at some point. And uh, when I got him onto my level and uh, we started having quite a, quite a, quite a, a level conversation rather about work, just about life and, you know, progression and where we want to go and what, what, you know, what's his ambitions with the brand and what's my ambitions as an employee. And we got quite, I mean, quite connected up there on Table Mountain and, basically gave him an ultimatum and said, if, if he wants to make it up to the top and finish, he's got to take me to the UK. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, he can get up by himself. <laughs> um, and at that point, he didn't have any cavalry around him or any uh, the directors to, to back him up, you know, <laughs> in terms of his army, as we would call it. So for the first time, I think I, w- I was uh, one up on him. And um, he, he said it, it took balls to, to do something like that. And um, yeah, two months later, I got a phone call in February. And um, I got offered the a role in, in London, um, you know, and that's a massive step for anyone in yeah. South Africa, which uh, which we all know. And I think just obviously the lack of, of working for a company that's international, you know, there's a South African business, which was strong, um, an opportunity to move internally with the company to the UK, um, grandfather being born here. So I do have ancestral visa, mm. but it was quite tough, you know, I'm sure, you know, even now it's, it's, it's even it gets progressively harder to move over if you don't have an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, moving with the company was, was, um, you know, an experience, you know, I remember that quite vividly in 2018 and I remember communicating with you as well before that happened, but, you know, going from Durban to Cape Town to the world is, is quite a, quite a jump. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think 2018 was, was an interesting time. It was, I remember quite vividly, it was July that I actually moved over. It took me about three or four months to get everything together, packed up my life and I moved to London. Um, and uh, yeah, I was given about six months until they opened up the map and they said go um, in the business. Uh, you know, early 20, 2019. So um, I had two years to grow uh, grow the brand globally. Um, you know, now we we're in one hundred and thirty two countries. Uh, we've got nine international offices. Um, obviously, through COVID and everything, three of those have unfortunately shut, but they 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 are getting revisited yeah. um, going forward. Uh, we've set up two uh, two Nil bars. Uh, you know, three distilleries um, and, you know, a global operation, you know, not just a, a, a you know, London-centric, South African-centric yeah. brand. Uh, it's, you know, it's now become a global brand. Um, and I've, through that whole process, I think grown, adapted, developed um, you know, the unique set of skills um, that have been used across the, the, the portfolio. Um, not just, you know, uh, my, my passion for gin, but 
um, I now represent the, the rums, the whiskies, uh, the whole portfolio. Um, so all 43 of our artisanal spirits. Um, and obviously now through that also with WSET, um, have become a, a, yeah, basically an educator too in terms of the, uh, the spirit space, uh, which I'll obviously be exercising quite soon um, internationally. So uh, not only representing the brands, but just the, the travel, the education. I mean, the best education we know is travel. Um, and I think in the alcohol industry, that's probably the, the, big, the, the biggest leveler, um, you know, going into a different market completely, not knowing anything, not knowing anyone, um, you know, and setting up a business and, and getting distribution and sales and, and developing a network. Um, you know, the world, the world becomes a small place and yeah. you've got a, a strong network. Um, and yes, I think, you know, COVID obviously put a, uh, did put a, a bullet in a lot of things, but there's a lot of, you know, through adversity uh, comes a lot of prosperity. I think there's a lot of opportunity now, massive opportunity. Um, I think the industry is, is, is yearning for, um, for development and, and um, new people. Um, and obviously a, a lot more dynamic people. I think there's no longer one job for one person. I think, you know, adaptability and, and triple hatting is something that's kind of part of the course now um, in our industry. Um, you know, you've got to be able to do a marketing, put your marketing and sales hat on, you know, your brand development hat on, and then at the same point in time, have your commercial hat on, you know, uh, to make sure it makes sense for the business. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a very holistic experience. And, yeah, I think it's four four years in July. <laughs> <laughs> what a ride! Um, but, but what a ride! Yeah. So, so how much of this is got to do with the whole gin revolution? I mean, that was must have just propelled the business onto a next level, and and somehow um, they were quite somehow they were quite well prepared for for this, where other people might have been caught offside. Yes, I agree. I think um, we we speak about a. A journey, um, on the, the gin revolution being a modern gin, modern day gin revolution that I think came from two categories of gin rather than the actual category itself because uh, London Dry through that whole process uh, periodically grew just by the sake of the, the pie getting bigger not because more people were drinking London Dry um, but it's through high strength flavoured gins so mm. compound gins in the category um, and then obviously pink gin mm. you know the, the biggest and the most the most iconic will probably be Larios in the early 2000s, you know, that, that drinking occasion was a massive thing. Um, so I think the occasion of when and how and what, with what, you know, the perfect serve and the mixes mm. and the aesthetics and the visual was a big thing, especially with uh, that pink gin consumer. Uh, but the biggest thing was the experimentation um, mm. of the category. I think we saw, you know, people, you know, people don't ask if Tanqueray is green or Bombay is blue, you know, uh, because they understand the category. Uh, those people that drink that brand. But, you know, people that drink our Whitley Nail flavors, you know, ask if the liquid's purple or red mm. or, you know, orange. And I think that just dictates who's come into the category. Yeah. You know, these experimenting consumers, visual consumers. And I think the revolution was a, a, a number of different things, but I think it was a lot of it. A lot of it was the growth of mixes, the growth of, you know, um, new consumers, the growth of social media. I think social yeah, media social. propelled the gin revolution yeah. immensely. I think, you know, the whole idea of uh, beautiful garnishing, beautiful drinks, the accessibility um, through social media, I think, made it very easy for for gin brands to 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 promote themselves without having to go the hard mm. uh, liquid to lips, you know, on, on the ground as we normally did. Um, but I think more importantly, it was people um, just wanting something a little different. You know, people were tired of vodka. Um, I think you know that there weren't brown spirits in a lot of markets are not accessible. Mm. Uh, whiskey and rum, you know, they found it a little bit a little bit. Um, 
you know, I think they find them a little bit strong, a little bit sweet as well. Uh, but again, you know, these consumers that are drinking this are more wine, vodka and champagne drinkers that it came into category that we found. And a lot of bourbon consumers from a male perspective uh, was the biggest influx in 2017. And that's kind of what catapulted it in 2017 okay. was, I think everything came to uh, fruition. And, and thankfully, we were ahead of the game. We were the first gin brand that produced a, a high strength flavor gin in the 2017 period. And that was our rhubarb and ginger, mm. Wiki Neal. Um, you know, we had made our blood orange vodka. We had made our quince with Neil. So there were two other flavors, but the one that really broke through and the reason for that hog is also because rhubarb is a quintessentially British flavor. Yeah. Um, and I think that balance of, of sweetness and, and spice with the ginger was just something that touched on a lot of homage. You know, I think gin is a very nostalgic product. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if it touches on a certain level of nostalgia and homage with, with certain markets, we find it, it, it just it, it drives huge volume growth. Um, and I think with all of those and people experimenting, um, you know, it ticked all the boxes and that's where Whitney Neal got onto the map, you know, in 2017 with its flavors, not its original. And the original has been around since 2003, uh, but the brand only became a, a global figure in 2017. So it's just ironic, you know, it, it did take quite a lot of time. And, and a lot of that was actually South Africa. It was our experiment with protein hibiscus Mm. Uh, that purple bottle that we did yeah. with Jazz and, and my team in, in Cape Town that we started seeing a new consumer, you know, people looking for our bottle on the back bar. No one knew what Woodley Neal was, but they knew the bottle. And that, that just, it just showed me there was a, there was a demand and, and, a, and a need for, um, I think, a, a new way of looking at consumers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was very, uh, the gin category is very one dimensional. And I think it opened up a new, um, you know, a new palette of gin drinkers. That that's kind of what we were going for. Um, and now, I guess the, the category's exploded. It's very saturated. Um, and I think the UK being one of the leaders globally on on category, I think we are seeing a, a, a slight uh, decline, I would say, or um, increasing at a decreasing rate uh, because I think consumers are now confused mm. about what is actually gin and what is not. You know, I think there's so many in the category and. And there's so much saturation that I think consumers are now either reverting back to London dry um, or they're not London dry drinkers moving back to flavored vodka or um, alternative categories like tequila, which is coming through as well here mm. on a small scale, smaller scale. Um, some going to spiced rum or flavored rum, flavored spiced rum. Uh, but we are seeing consumers now, I think, being I think tired or exhausted of, of experimentation. And that's kind of what's catapulted all these in. PDs and flavors, you know, how long do you keep a consumer within the category? Uh, but our understanding is that these consumers progress on palate, like, like whiskey, uh, yeah. moving up from Irish, from bourbon to Irish, to blended scotch, to single malt scotch, to peated scotch. We feel that there's a, a journey of consumer from gin liqueurs to pink gin, to high strength flavored gin, to London dry, and then beyond London dry is barrel aged gin or overproof gin or mm. sipping gin, we call it, um, which is quite strong in South Africa, Germany, Scandinavia. Um, Australia, kind of these like niche, uh, very niche style gins um, of a small base, but at least there's something at the end of category mm. uh, to catch these connoisseurs. So um, it's, you know, it's been an experiment. Um, and I think, um, I think Woodley Neal's definitely a, a part of that, that revolution. Um, I think high string flavor gin and pink gin has is, is definitely got the tag for being the catapult of, or the catalyst rather, sorry, of the, of the category growing um, in that period. Um, so, I mean, it was interesting. I think we just caught the wave at the right time. Uh, and again, the sparse rum revolution that, we, that we've helped here in the UK uh, with Dead Man's Fingers. And I know it's doing very well now in South Africa um, as well as a competitor in that category. So, 
uh, we've always seemed to have flexibility on our side with regards to the company mm. and products. Talk a little bit about the Deadman's Finger. Where, where does that brand come from? Um, so Deadman's Fingers is a Cornish rum. Um, it was born out of the rum and crab shack in St. Ives. Um, so for any, you know, I guess any listeners that are uh, not or have never heard of Cornwall, Cornwall's like like Durban, mm. you know, the east coast of South Africa in the UK. It's just a completely different world. And you know, it's got its own currency, flag, um, you know, language, you know, it's got its own, it's got its own, um, it's got its own community and climate down there. It's, it's nothing to do with the UK, to be honest, during <laughs> summer and most of the year. Um, and I think Cornwall's just, it's, it, you know, surface paradise, it's outdoor living, adventure, you know, skydiving, kite surfing, uh, you know, hiking. It's a very much an outdoor lifestyle, which is 180 to what the UK is, you know, in, in most, most part. Um, so, you know, the brand kind of speaks to that adventure seeking, you know, you know, rum, I think is, is about an attitude um, as a category anyway. I think people that drink rum, you know, if, uh, I have got a, a very high, uh, I want to say high affinity for, for social, uh, social environments, you know, um, outdoor living, adventure seeking, music, entertainment. I think rum speaks to a unique category. And I think that's where Dead Man's Fingers taps into, it taps into the attitude uh, but it's a Cornish rum uh, that was developed in the rum and crab shack to pair with food. And um, it was actually, you know, initially uh, used as a pairing ingredient for a lot of seafood. Um, okay. You know, the, the influence of Thailand and, and kind of Florida with stone crabs and, and you know, the kind of like seafood and rum culture around the world, especially also the West Coast of the U.S. Um, a guy by the name of Nathan Hayes uh, took that back to Cornwall and set up a rum and crab shack. Um, and the name's quite interesting. A lot of people always ask, whether, what is a dead man's finger? Um, there's obviously a, a couple of interesting remarks we normally get from that, but uh, it primarily what it does mean is the gill of a crab that you cannot eat. So a dead man's fingers are, are, are ironically a part of the crab you cannot eat that uh, previously in folklore would, would uh, as a myth would kill you. Okay. Uh, but what it did actually do is uh, when, um, when ships would, would kind of crash on the rocks out in Cornwall and uh, the rum would be bootlegged into the southwest of England, uh, they would feed them a dead man's finger to kind of bring up the seawater um, so it was used to resuscitate sailors. Okay. Um, so it's the part of a crab that actually resuscitated um, anyone that inhaled too much um, seawater or fear of drowning, um, ironically. So there is an affinity and a link back to yeah. the rum, you know, the rum bootlegging, uh, the, uh, the black market of rum into the southwest of England. But it's quite fun. It's, you know, it's, we're trying to steer away from pirates, pirates and palm trees, but it's more food-led. Um, it's got six botanicals that are boiled into it post-production. Um, the core liquid that is in the Holger used to be a Foursquare Distillery. Uh, mm-hmm. We have shares in, in Foursquare. Um, a lot of people might know the distillery very well. With uh, We have a brand called Rum 66 uh, with Richard Seal. Um, and then um, Dead Man's Fingers now, because of the volume and, and the scale we've got it to, it's actually a Spanish-style um, rum from Panama, um, from a distillery in Panama that we are using. So it is a two-year-old rum at its base. Um, and that's obviously the liquid that's you know used internationally now for our spice, which is our top seller. And then obviously the uh, the different flavors within the range uh, that obviously plug the different gaps mm. of consumers, cocktails, and then perfect serve strategies. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting. And and w- uh, how do you see the rum market? Is it is it picking up? Um, yes, we do. I think, you know, when people say there's a spice rum revolution, I, I agreed that there, there's definitely a, a, an exponential mm-hmm. growth and a gap, but nothing on the scale of, of gin. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, the next, when they say the next big thing is rum, um, when I beg, no, but the next thing was spice rum. It, it currently is still in that, but I think even that too has got a, a lifespan. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think what the spice rum category has done, which is great, is it's bridged the gap between, we call it brown bag rum, the entry level of market and, and, and aged rum. I think there's a huge gap between your rum and coke and rum and mixer, you know, from a grocery level. Yeah. Um, that's quite cheap and, and cheerful to the premium age stated stuff, which is sipping, you know, not generally mixed, but it's collector's items and, and, and really craftsmanship, you know. Uh, there's nothing in between that, you know, in terms yeah. of the market. And I think that's what, that's something that we, we found that the, the consumer was looking for. Um, the Jack Daniels alternative, you know, kind of yeah. in, the, in the rum market. So, um, yeah, for us, it's been interesting. I, th- I think that the market's still growing. I mean, we, we've come out with some interesting cream liqueurs. We've seen a, a huge growth in the cream liqueur market. Okay. Um, so we've launched at Dead Man's Fingers uh, some rum, a raspberry rum liqueur in the UK, which has done ex- exceptionally well. Um, and we've dabbled now in the last uh, year into tequila in the range too, because we mm. felt the brand kind of extends itself. You know, tequila and rum are kind of into the same consumer. Um, so we've got a, a beautiful Reposado in the range uh, that we released across the UK into Tesco. Uh, and through that, two other cream liqueurs, a mango tequila and a strawberry tequila that's being released into that cream liqueur market uh, for the brand. So I think the brand, it grew up in Cornwall. It's its base is in Cornwall, but uh, our distillery is based in Bristol. You know, we say the brand went to university and got its character in Bristol. Uh, you know, kind of the eclectic, arty, um, you know, very eclectic side of the UK. And... Um, yeah, the, the brand's a huge now. It's the second biggest spice rum in the UK. We should overtake Kraken, uh, which we ironically make at our, our facility in the UK at H&A in Chorley. Um, should overtake that by hopefully the end of the year. Um, but, you know, in terms of flavors, we're definitely top of the pile uh, in terms of bringing those new consumers into the market. Mm. Um, and as I said to you, a beautiful crossover between the Wicked Neal and, and Dead Man's Fingers. So we've captured, you know, and kept those consumers within, within the company um, in terms of palate. Even what what trends are you seeing there that we that you think might end up in in South Africa? Um, I think trends at the moment from here. Um, I mean, we're seeing a bit of, of rum. We're seeing a bit of tequila. Yeah, I, again, I, I I think one of the biggest trends, as as we discussed earlier, is I think convenience and consistency is a big thing uh, we're seeing in the market here, Hoga. I think. Uh, we're seeing a, a change of consumers' mindsets. You know, and people are not asking questions anymore about, you know, uh, the age statements. Mm. And you know, there is definitely a premiumization in the category. But I'm seeing, you know, a lot of people, you know, especially venue owners, opting for consistency and, and convenience. You know, trying to get make sure everyone in the room has got a cocktail in hand. Um, so bottled cocktails, you know, RTDs, uh, mm. you know, park drinking, outdoor drinking, especially with summer convenience drinking. Um, you know, taps with cocktails, porn star martinis or passion fruit martinis and espresso martinis are your top two cocktails by far in the UK. So you've got the likes of Diageo putting those into, you know, your kind of mid-range bars in the UK instead of making people, you know, shake up cocktails. So, you know, it eradicates Kahlua, for example, and and, and buying ingredients rather, you know, and and just straight out of a tap. Mm. And, you know, as purists, we're against that, but you can understand from a commercial perspective, you know, the wastage, the consistency, and also, we're having an issue with hospitality and staff, yeah. you know, especially here in Europe with uh, Brexit and post-COVID. I think a lot of people have moved on out of hospitality. So it's very tough to get uh, really good, competent staff to actually make decent cocktails. Mm. Uh, as much as it, it sounds easy to make a mojito or espresso martini, you know, it's actually quite scary how uh, your everyday bartender that thinks they're a top-level bartender can't even make classic cocktails. Mm. So um, I think there's definitely a gap in the market of, of skills versus um, uh 
people being around. Um, so that's why that's that's emerged. I think convenience drinking, you know, we RTDs with Dead, Dead Man's Fingers are doing very well. We know the market in South Africa is, you know, very strong. But I think there's definitely a premiumization in, in terms of that category coming. You know, top level brands going into RTDs, you know, better liquids, you know, better uh, flavors, um, you know, I think quite unique creativity in that space. Um, we're seeing a bit a strong trend um, here to stone fruit, dark cherries, uh, slow gin, uh, you know, peaches, apricots, uh, you know, dark, I want to say dark fruits, berries. You know, we, we're seeing in the Wadenial range, especially our raspberry, doing very well. The blackberry, raspberry, dark cherries. Um, so I think it's a little bit more of a winter occasion here, but that dark fruit uh, with white spirits is definitely coming through current um, as a trend in flavor. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I think trends from here at the moment i think you know tequila is definitely behind in the uk compared to sa i mean i you know i always say i always bark the same conversation that south africa is you know one of the strongest tequila markets in the world in terms of premiumization you know people drink high level tequilas before drink entry-level spirits you know at a bar you know they don't forego um good quality stuff but um in terms of the uk i think um, cream liqueurs. Mm. I think we're seeing a, a, a big adaption on cream liqueurs. I think the cream liqueur market has definitely exploded in uh, people after hours drinking. Um, I think there's a huge education around um, uh, NPD and that's good cream liqueurs, not just your, your entry-level uh, kind of run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, What about um, yeah. bitter? Bitters, yes. Mm. Um, I think th there's been a lot of exploration here in terms of Amaro's. So variations of Campari, you know, Campari is no longer the, you know, kind of like the go-to, um, you know, you have stuff like Pampel um, and other brands in, in the market chair that are challenging, you know, mm. Campari as an alternative. And, and, and I think everyone loves the idea of spritzers. I think mm. hedonistic drinking is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much against a non-alcoholic spirits um, as a purist, I guess. Um, I don't know how people can charge that price point, you know, but I understand it from a consumer point of view, you know, being able to go out and still, partake in drinking but not you know be liable or, or you'll put yourself in danger you know driving you know under mm -hmm. the influence etc so the whole non-alcoholic market is still doing very well uh, off a small base mm. uh, but i think there's different ways of attacking that i think it's more about serves you know there's definitely a lot more appetite for very interesting mocktails or lower abv style drinks yeah. uh, hence why beef eaters brought out that 21 in europe and and a couple other other products that have emerged in the market um But yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, spritzes lighter, less sugar. People are becoming more aware about the content in their drinks, uh, more hedonistic drinking uh, mm. here in the UK. And do, um, do you think there's a, there's a market for hard seltzer outside the States? Um, I think the market here, especially in Europe, was, was ready for it. Uh, it all came in at once. And mm. now the, con the problem with everything coming at once is it confused consumers too much. Mm. Um, and I think it, 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 there is a gap for that, but consumers now are being saturated by hard seltzers. And I think, you know, the hard seltzer market, unfortunately, is it, it's, it, the bubble's burst. Um, mm. I've seen, you know, I think in, in the US, it's massive. I mean, uh, that animal in 2019, I saw there with White Claw, uh, LaCroix, and, mm. and all these brands out there was, was, was scary to see how quickly it was growing. Um, and I think we jumped on it here, but the UK palate doesn't like, it's actually not a soda drinker. Um, you know, ironically compared to like South Africa, um, it's very much lemonade, ginger ales, you know, very sweet mm. uh, kind of palate. So that's where seltzer kind of I think fell short. I think that the concept was there, but consumers here always fall back into the sweeter, sweet. It's definitely a level up in sweetness from okay. South Africa, that's for sure. Um, so that's why it's hard seltzer in Europe. I think uh, places like Germany, Scandinavia, 
um, southeastern, you know, kind of Europe, Turkey, Greece, those kind of markets are doing very well with uh, something like grapefruit soda, for example. Um, something like three cents, you know, three cents sells more pink grapefruit soda than Coke in Cyprus. Um, you know, so there's there's certain markets where it does really well. So I think it's it's kind of targeted mm. uh, success rather than blanket success for something like that. Yeah. Okay. In terms of your your role at Hellwood, you've gone up very quickly. What what opportunities are there for you? And um, yeah, so I think um, next steps are uh, going forward. Um, understanding more of the the, the local UK uh, wholesale and on trade market. Mm. Um, so what I've done is I've moved into a bit more of a commercial position for the last three months. Uh, just understanding how the pub sector uh, and the on-trade sector is actually mapped out in the UK. Where does you know where does the volume come from? You know where are the opportunities? Um, you know how to actually grow a brand in the UK. I think the UK is one of the most complex markets in the world in terms of booze, um, in terms of developing brands. So you know who are the biggest role players? You know if, if you get listings at certain wholesalers, you know who do they look after? What are the biggest groups? Um, and you know, you know building equity in the UK on brands uh, is kind of what's been the the, the last three months. Um, and then, yeah, obviously going forward uh, with the company, um, you know, the, the international markets are opening up again. We're looking at potentially partnering up with a U.S. company. Okay. Uh, so we're going to, we, uh, you know, in terms of the short term, a lot of opportunity in the U.S. Um, and obviously Europe for us, Germany is becoming a, a strong proposition in Iberia. So Italy, Portugal and Spain. Okay. Um, so we're seeing a lot of a lot of huge progression on the brands there. So there's going to be a lot of work in the next 18 months there. Uh, but John, my focus will be a lot more on home ground. Um, our new, our new whiskies are about to release all their new liquids. Uh, we've got a Welsh distillery, um, an Irish distillery, and a Scottish distillery that are producing their own liquids that will now be ready uh, fairly soon um, in the Welsh and Scottish department to to you know kind of push out to trade and start developing a little bit more of a, a um, collateral and communication on those brands uh, to build them into international products. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Devon, it's been great catching up and, and I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat to us. Pleasure, pleasure, Holger. And um, look forward to sipping on a beer at, uh, in Kloof Country Club maybe when I'm back. Thank you for listening to our stories here online. In the show notes, you will also find a link where you can subscribe to become part of our community and be notified when we upload our latest content.